This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Major Keyhole, as author of the book Flying Saucers Are Real, what is your opinion of these new sightings of unidentified objects? With all due respect to the Air Force, I believe that some of them will prove to be of interplanetary origin. During a three-year investigation, I found that many pilots have described objects of substance and high speed. One case, pilots reported their plane was buffeted by an object which passed them at 500 miles an hour. Obviously, this was a solid object, and I believe it was from outer space. On the night of September 19, 1961, Betty and Barney Hill, a married couple from Portsmouth, New Hampshire, journeyed home from Montreal. As they passed through New Hampshire's White Mountains, they had a UFO sighting that began with a light in the sky and ended with a close-up encounter in a field near a tourist area known as Indian Head. But was there more to this story? They arrived home at least two hours later than they had expected. What had happened during that time? I'm Toby Ball, and this is Strange Arrivals. Episode 2, Men in the Road. Shortly after the UFO encounter on the night of September 19, 1961, searching for answers, Betty Hill went to the Portsmouth Public Library, where she checked out a book titled The Flying Saucer Conspiracy by Major Donald E. Kehoe. That was Major Kehoe speaking at a press conference at the beginning of this episode. He was an Air Force major and the co-founder of the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, or NICAP a prominent UFO investigation organization in the 1950s and 60s. We'll look at NICAP later in this episode. The Flying Saucer Conspiracy was published in 1953. The basic story is that Major Kehoe investigates UFO encounters and the government's knowledge of them. The government, of course, tries to thwart his investigation. As a piece of Cold War paranoia, it's fascinating. As a work of nonfiction, it doesn't hold up very well. This excerpt gives you a taste of what the book is like. The moon could have been inhabited long ago, then abandoned as conditions changed. Its creatures could have reached Mars and established a civilization there, to return home only at frequent intervals. Perhaps they used the moon as a space base for travel to other planets. Or there may never have been a moon race at all. The lunar sphere could have been occupied by outsiders, from Mars, for example, or from a planet beyond our solar system. Gradually, a base could have been built up, most of it underground to avoid meteor falls. The intermittent use of the moon as a space base would explain the strange lights of the past two centuries, 
as well as the mysterious radial cracks or lines, which might be caused by intense heat from blastoffs. This unknown race might have regarded with increasing interest our own world. They too may fear our explorations. There was another possible answer. The creatures on the moon might be a combination of several races from other planets. We might never know until we reached the moon. Unless one of their spaceships landed on Earth. You have to keep in mind that when this book was written, near space was a real mystery. Our window on the planets was the lens of a telescope. We didn't have any satellites orbiting the Earth. We hadn't put a man in space, much less on the moon. Our knowledge of our solar system was much more in keeping with what we knew in 1800 than what we know now. You could populate the planets with whatever your imagination conceived. Eight years later, in 1961, when Betty and Barney had their encounter, there were fewer than 10 satellites in orbit. Right now, we have more than 4,600. Near space was a far more mysterious place 60 years ago. The culture surrounding UFOs was also different. Popular interest in UFOs dates back to June 24th, 1947, when a pilot named Kenneth Arnold saw nine metallic flying disks traveling at high speeds near Mount Rainier. His story hit the newspapers two days later. The Chicago Sun, for instance, ran a two-page story headlined, Supersonic Flying Saucers Sighted by Idaho Pilot. Speed estimated at 1,200 miles an hour when seen 10,000 feet up near Mount Rainier. Two weeks later, in New Mexico, the public information officer at Roswell Army Air Force Base issued a press release stating that the 509th Operations Group had recovered a flying disc that had crashed on ranch land. The modern UFO era was underway. There's only 14 years between those events and Betty and Barney's experience. Ufology was just finding its legs. Two different types of UFO stories emerged during the 1950s. Part of what makes the Hills account so compelling is how drastically it differed from both of them. The first narrative involves so-called contactees, people who claim to have met and communicated with aliens. The most famous of the contactees was an eccentric Polish-born American named George Adamski. I talked to Aaron Golias about Adamski and the UFO scene of the 1950s. I am Aaron Gullius. I'm a history professor and writer and host of the podcast The Saucer Life, where I look at flying saucer history and lore in all its various forms. George Adamski was an interesting figure because he started off not as a flying saucer contactee, but as sort of a spiritualist guru back in the 1920s and 30s in California with an organization called the Royal Order of Tibet. And he developed something he called the Cosmic Philosophy. The Cosmic Philosophy was a not very remarkable mix of Eastern philosophy and idiosyncratic Christianity. More interestingly, during Prohibition, Adamski got permission for the Royal Order of Tibet to make wine for religious purposes. He made enough, he said, for all of Southern California, and he made quite a bit of money. But Prohibition ended, 
and with it, Adamski's winemaking. Then he, in the 1940s, as the flying saucer craze begins, writes a science fiction novel called Pioneers of Space, which has a crew of people in a rocket ship going to various planets in the solar system and meeting Martians on Mars and Venusians on Venus and Moonanites on the moon. And all of these people in all these different civilizations have societies that are far in advance of what we have here on the Earth. In the early 1950s, he begins taking photographs of what he claims are flying saucers. You can find Adamski's photos on the internet. The saucer has been identified as a model constructed from a German medical lamp and three light bulbs. In 1952, he has a meeting in the desert with a being from a flying saucer. And he communicates through gestures, and and he's from the planet Venus. The Venusians are concerned because of atomic explosions they've detected coming from the Earth, that this might spell doom for the balance of the solar system. These other civilizations have already passed beyond this stage of development that Earth is in. Not only did the Venusians come from an advanced and enlightened civilization, They were, according to Adamski, kind of hot. This is from an interview Adamski did with radio host Long John Nebel. Yeah, a a man about a five foot uh, seven to eight uh, inches, and I would say around uh, 135 pounds of quite delicate hands, uh, tapered fingers, and uh, beautiful arms. Very sharp eyes looked like they looked right through you. Sometimes you couldn't hardly tell whether he was really a man or a woman. And uh, the long hair waving, uh, resting on his shoulders, he uh, kind of a, a halfway smile, and uh, put his hand out to shake. And it was a palm to palm contact anyway. And he smiled. He started telling me things, and I couldn't understand. And I, uh, I finally uh, got the idea. I want to know where he's from. I pointed to the sun, and I made one orbit, called it Mercury, named it, and then Venus, and then Earth, and pointed on myself and the Earth. And then I said, where are you from? He got the idea. He finally pointed to the sun, and he made one orbit, didn't say nothing, he made a second orbit, and he pointed to himself and to that orbit. Then that meant Venus. That's how I knew he was Venetian. It's hard to imagine anyone taking this very seriously. Back in the 1950s, it was very much akin to uh, to science fiction fandom. And you get the impression that even when they don't believe every word of something that somebody like Adamski wrote, they recognize the value of his message, which honestly I think is what Adamski was trying to get across. The Flying Saucers we can take or leave, but his consistent message of humanity needing to ascend to a higher moral plane, that predates his saucer stories. That goes back to his stuff he was doing in the 20s and 30s. So you have the contactees spreading this story of peace, fellowship, and high spiritual attainment. But there was another track of interest in UFOs, what Aaron calls the nuts and bolts people. People who took a more scientific approach trying to determine what was causing these reports of unidentified craft in the skies. 
Among its ranks were many professionals, such as journalists, scientists, and military personnel. There's also, from the nuts and bolts people, a, a deep disdain for contacteeism, for, for sort of making UFOs or flying saucers something that's easy to laugh at. Which brings us back to Major Kehoe. Donald Kehoe wasn't the founder of NICAP, but he took control of it very quickly. NICAP is the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomenon. And in its earliest incarnation in the 1950s, its governing board had people who had been connected with the military and intelligence and and government circles at the national level. And Donald Kehoe, who was an aviation journalist and Marine Corps major, took a very common sense approach to UFOs in a lot of ways. These are strange objects flying in our skies. They are behaving in ways that our technology can't. The Air Force has been interested in them. Therefore, the Air Force must know something about these craft that we do not know and that they refuse to tell us. So NICAP's mission from very early on was in attempting to get the handling of UFOs, the investigation of UFOs, moved away from the Air Force toward more civilian investigation efforts to have government hearings and civilian government-sponsored research into the UFO phenomenon, because the Air Force would just keep everything secret. This secrecy is a main theme of the Flying Saucer Conspiracy. NICAP saw the Air Force's approach as being unhelpful to solving the mystery and believed that if only Congress would authorize a big research project, we might be able to get to the bottom of this and get the Air Force out of the picture and force them to maybe bring forth what they know and admit whatever the truth might be about it. But NICAP was was very much focused on sightings, on evidence, on, on very detailed, careful reports from witnesses. They had no time for contactees. They had no time for anything they saw as, uh, as silly. In 1961, NICAP would be the first group Betty and Barney Hill would reach out to with their story. Strange Arrivals will return in a moment. At the time of the Hills encounter, NICAP was the most prominent UFO investigation organization in the country. In 1958, they had over 5,000 members in chapters across the U.S. By the 60s, membership had grown to 14,000. Among its ranks were many professionals, such as journalists, scientists, and military personnel. After reading Donald Kehoe's The Flying Saucer Conspiracy, Betty contacted NICAP. They sent an astronomer named Walter Webb to investigate in October of 1961, a month after the encounter. This early investigation was mostly concerned with establishing the events that we looked at in Episode 1. Here's a passage from Webb's report on his meeting with the Hills, as read by an actor. It gives you a sense of his conclusions. Following my initial six-hour interrogation of the witnesses on October 21, 1961, 
I was of the opinion the hills were telling the truth and that the first encounter with the UFO occurred exactly as reported, except for minor uncertainties and technicalities that must be tolerated in any such observation where human judgment is involved, i.e. exact time and length of visibility, apparent sizes of object and occupants, distance and height of object, etc. Although their occupations did not qualify the witnesses as scientific observers, I was impressed by their intelligence, apparent honesty, and obvious desire to get at the facts and to underplay the more sensational aspects of the sighting. Neither witness had read any books on the UFO subject before the sighting. Mr. Hill, especially, had been a complete UFO skeptic before the experience. He still detests the term, flying saucer. Two things changed for Betty and Barney after the UFO encounter. First, Betty had vivid dreams of being kidnapped and brought aboard a craft. They were so unusual that she began to think they might be subconscious memories of an actual abduction on the night of the encounter. In November 1961, she wrote about her dreams in a document titled Dreams or Recall. We'll take a closer look at these dreams later in the series. But in introducing the dreams, she writes, I will attempt to tell my dreams in chronological order, although they were not dreamed in this way. In fact, the first dream told was the last one dreamed. My emotional feelings during this part was of terror greater than I had ever believed possible. The second thing was that Barney's health took a turn for the worse. He developed a circular pattern of warts around his groin. His mental health deteriorated, and he began to suffer from ulcers. Betty explained this during a talk she gave in Connecticut in 1987. Then Barney's health began to fail, and to the point that he became totally disabled. He was not responding to medication. His doctor thought that maybe he had some kind of emotional problem. So he sent Barney to a friend of his, a psychiatrist. And Barney was going in talking about his early childhood and his mother and his father and all that. This psychiatrist was Duncan Stevens, and his office was in Exeter, New Hampshire. Here is Barney Hill from a May 25th, 1966 appearance on The Alan Douglas Show. I had an ulcer that had not bothered me for months and years, but it then began to bother me. And it did not respond to any medication from the medical doctor. And so uh, he then decided, well, possibly it had some kind of uh, psychological origin or, or cause that uh, continued, uh, that it persisted in uh, causing this distress with me. The UFO encounter was mostly ignored during these sessions. But in 1963, Dr. Stevens felt that Barney could benefit from hypnosis therapy and referred him to the esteemed Boston-based psychiatrist Dr. Benjamin Simon. Dr. Simon was famous for his work with returning soldiers suffering from what we would now call PTSD. Betty went along with Barney to the first appointment 
This is Kathleen Martin, Betty Hill's niece and an experienced UFO investigator. She indicated to Dr. Simon that she would like to be hypnotized as well. So he agreed to hypnotize the two of them separately and to reinstate amnesia because they had amnesia for the events that occurred. In our sessions with Dr. Simon, uh, we were done individually. And he also gave us amnesia at the end of each session so that we could not remember what had happened. And this way we couldn't talk about it. He had worked with us quite a bit. And then he opened up the amnesia so we could learn what had happened. For a time, Dr. Simon ensured that Barney and Betty could not recall the content of their sessions. This was to prevent further trauma and to keep them from discussing the memories that had come up under hypnosis. Eventually, Dr. Simon played the tapes back to the hills so that they could process what they had recovered during hypnotic regression. This creature, this leader is telling me something. Over the course of these sessions, a story emerged. A story that explained what had happened during the early hours of September 20th, 1961. A story that seemed to fill in the missing time from their trip. It starts with Barney, for no apparent reason, turning off the highway. What they revealed, and they did this separately, is that somehow they found themselves on a new road. There were tall trees all around. Barney turned then onto a dirt road, it's my understanding. Betty consciously recalled him moving the car almost stopping them, but almost screeching the brakes and turning toward the left. And so they went down this dirt road and standing in the dirt road were men. And they were holding, one of them was holding some kind of lighted thing in its hand. There was a red-orange glow in the background. Again, from Barney's radio interview. Can you describe, are you, are you able to describe what these men look like, how they were dressed? Well, when I saw them standing in the headlights of the car before the lights went out, they were in dark, uh, similar kind of garment. Mm-hmm. And I called it a uniform, which I thought uh, as a pea jacket. I also understand, uh, Alan, that uh, in critical situations, we continually try to put things into the frame of reference. Uh, that we can identify with as a natural thing. So that I thought of the uniform being much like a Navy pea jacket. On March 7th, 1964, during a hypnosis session in Dr. Simon's Boston office, Betty relived what happened on this remote stretch of road. I thought, well, you know, are they in a car and the car broke it down? What are they doing there? And... Barney, of course, had to stop, and then he stops the car, and these men started to come up to the car. They, they, they separated. They came up in two groups, and when they started to do that, I, I got real scared. And the, the car motor died. The cast off. And, and when they started coming up, Barney tried to start the car. 
you try to start it, and you know how a motor of a cow will just turn over, turn over, it won't fire. Yep. He's not stopping. He did what? He's trying to start the car yes. and it won't start. And the medic, I mean, I just, and I think, well, I can't get away from this. I can, if I get the car door open, I can run in the woods and hide. And I'm thinking it, and I just put my hand on the car door and open it. And just, and the men come up and they open it for me. And they open the car door and this very big man. And it's one. <laughs> Next thing. And then it's two men behind us. And there's a couple of men behind me. And then there's Barney. And he... <laughs> there's a man on each side of him. And my eyes are open. My body's still asleep. He's walking and he's asleep. And I begin to get mad. And they go, who the heck are these characters and what do they think they're doing? And so I turn around and I say, Bonnie, wake up. Bonnie, why don't you wake up? And he doesn't any attention. He keeps walking. I keep going a little bit further and I turn around and I say his name again, Barney, wake up. He doesn't pay any attention. And then the man who's walking beside me here says, oh, is his name Barney? Yes. I turned around and I looked at this man and I figured it's none of his business. So I didn't speak to him. Do we keep walking? And I try to wake Barney up again. He said, Barney, Barney, wake up. And he doesn't. So the man said, he asked me again, he said, is Barney his name? Then I would ask him so that he says, he says, don't be afraid. You don't have any reason to be afraid. We're not going to harm you. But we just want to do some tests. When the tests are over with, we'll take your body back and put you in your car. You'll be on your way back home in no time. And so... He was sort of reassuring in a way, but I wasn't, can't say that I trusted what he said. And I wasn't sure what was going to happen, and we kept walking, and the body was still asleep, and then we came to a clearing. And I wish it was lighter so I could get a better picture of that. There was a ramp in the door. There was a, it, the object was on the ground. 
was the same when I was watching in the sky. And there were trees, and there was a path, and there was this clearing. And this object, just, oh, the clearing I could see just about filled up, filled up the clearing. And they're taking me up to the object. Now, I don't want to go on it. I don't want to, I don't know what's going to happen if I go on it. I don't want to go. And I go up the ramp. Should I go inside? These weren't George Adamski's beautiful space peaceniks. But what were they? And what did they want? Next time on Strange Arrivals. Strange Arrivals is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. This episode was written and hosted by Toby Ball and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Josh Thane, with executive producers Alex Williams, Matt Frederick, and Aaron Mankey. Betty Hill was portrayed by Gina Rakicki. Walter Webb was voiced by Michael J. Weaver. Special thanks to the Milne Special Collections and Archives at the University of New Hampshire, John Horrigan, WICH 1310 AM in Norwich, Connecticut, John White and David O'Leary, the executive producer of the History Channel's dramatic series, Project Blue Book. Learn more about the show over at GrimAndMild.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.